0: Second Division: The History of the Moral Sentiments, Part One of Human, All Too Human, a Book for Free Spirits, by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Helen Zimmern, 1846 to 1934. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Aaron Rivetta. Second Division: The History of the Moral Sentiments. Thirty-five advantages of psychological observation. That reflection on the human, all too human, or, according to the learned expression, psychological observation, is one of the means by which one may lighten the burden of life. That exercise in this art produces presence of mind in difficult circumstances, in the midst of tiresome surroundings, even that from the most thorny and unpleasant periods of one's own life one may gather maxims and thereby feel a little better. All this was believed, was known in former centuries. Why was it forgotten by our century when in Germany, at least, even in all Europe, the poverty of psychological observation betrays itself by many signs. Not exactly in novels, tales, and philosophical treaties. They are the work of exceptional individuals. Rather, in the judgments on public events and personalities. But above all, there is a lack of the art of psychological analysis and summing up in every rank of society, in which a great deal is talked about men, but nothing about man. Why do we allow the richest and most harmless subject of conversation to escape us? Why are not the greatest masters of psychological maxim more read? For, without any exaggeration, the educated man in Europe who has read La Rochefoucauld and is kindred in mind and art is rarely found, and still more rare is he who knows them and does not blame them. It is probable, however, that even this exceptional reader will find much less pleasure in them than the form of this artist who should afford him. For even the clearest head is not capable of rightly estimating the art of shaping and polishing maxims unless he has really been brought up to it and has competed in it. Without this practical teaching, one deems this shaping and polishing to be easier than it is. One has not a sufficient perception of fitness and charm. For this reason, the present readers of maxims find in them a comparatively small pleasure, hardly a mouthful of pleasantness so that they resemble the people who generally look at cameos who praise because they cannot love and are very ready to admire, but still more ready to run away. 36. Objection Or should there be a counter-reckoning to that theory that places psychological observation amongst the means of charming, curing, and relieving existence? Should one have sufficiently convinced oneself of the unpleasant consequences of this art to divert from it designedly the attention of him who is educating himself in it? As a matter of fact, a certain blind belief in the goodness of human nature, an innate aversion to the analysis of human actions, a kind of shamefacedness with respect to the nakedness of the soul may really be more desirable for the general well-being of a man than the quality, useful in isolated cases, of psychological sharp-sightedness. And perhaps the belief in goodness, in virtuous men and deeds, in an abundance of impersonal goodwill in the world, has made men better inasmuch as it has made them less distrustful. When one imitates Plutarch's heroes with enthusiasm, and turns with disgust from a suspicious examination of the motives for their actions, it is not truth which benefits thereby, but the welfare of human society. The psychological mistake, and generally speaking, the insensibility on this matter helps humanity forwards. While the recognition of truth gains more through the stimulating power of hypothesis than La Rochefoucauld has said in his preface to the first edition of his Sentence et Maximes Morales*, Ce que le monde nomme vertu n'est d'ordinaire qu'on fantôme formé par nos passions à qui on donnait un homme honnête pour faire impuniment ce qu'on La Rochefoucauld and those other French masters of soul examination who have lately been joined by a German, the author of Psychological Observations, resemble good marksmen who again and again hit the bullseye, but it is the bull's eye of human nature. Their art arouses astonishment, but in the end a spectator who is not led by the spirit of science, but by humane intentions, will probably execrate an art which appears to implant in the soul the sense of the disparagement and suspicion of mankind." 37. Nevertheless, however it may be with reckoning and counter-reckoning, in the present condition of philosophy the awakening of moral observation is necessary. Humanity can no longer be spared the cruel side of the psychological dissecting table with its knives and forceps. For here rules that science which inquires into the origin and history of the so-called moral sentiments, and which, in its progress, has to draw up and solve complicated sociological problems. The older philosophy knows the latter one not at all, and has always avoided the examination of the origin and history of moral sentiments on any feeble pretext. With what consequences it is now very easy to see, after it has been shown by many examples how the mistakes of the greatest philosophers generally have their starting point in a wrong explanation of certain human actions and sensations, just as on the ground of an erroneous analysis, for instance, that of the so-called unselfish actions a false ethic is built up, Then, to harmonize with this again, religion and mythological confusion are brought in to assist. And finally, the shades of these dismal spirits fall also over physics and the general mode of regarding the world. If it is certain, however, that superficiality and psychological observation has laid, and still lays, the most dangerous snares for human judgment and conclusions, then there is need now of that endurance of work which does not grow weary of piling stone upon stone, pebble on pebble, There is need of courage not to be ashamed of such humble work and to turn a deaf ear to scorn. And this is also true. Numberless single observations on the human and all-too-human have first been discovered, and given utterance to, in circles of society which were accustomed to offer sacrifice therewith to a clever desire to please, and not to scientific knowledge. And the odor of that old home of the moral maxim, a very seductive odor, has attached itself almost inseparably to the whole species, so that on its account the scientific man involuntarily betrays a certain distrust of this species and its earnestness. But it is sufficient to point to the consequences, for already it begins to be seen what results of a serious kind spring from the ground of psychological observation. What, after all, is the principal axiom to which the boldest and coldest thinker, the author of the book On the Origin of Moral Sensations, has attained by means of his incisive and decisive analysis of human actions. The moral man, he says, is no nearer to the intelligible, metaphysical, world than is the physical man. This theory, hardened and sharpened under the hammer blow of historical knowledge, may sometime or other, perhaps in some future period, serve as the axe which is applied to the root of the metaphysical need of man. Whether more as a blessing than a curse to the general welfare, it is not easy to say but in any case as a theory with the most important consequences, at once fruitful and terrible, and looking into the world with that genus face which all great knowledge possesses. 38. How far useful? It must remain forever undecided whether psychological observation is advantageous or disadvantageous to man, but it is certain that it is necessary, because science cannot do without it. Science, however, has no consideration for ultimate purpose any more than nature has. But just as the latter occasionally achieves things of the greatest suitableness without intending to do so, so also true science, as the imitator of nature and ideas, will occasionally and in many ways further the usefulness and welfare of man, but also without intending to do so. But whoever feels too chilled by the breath of such a reflection has perhaps too little fire in himself. Let him look around him meanwhile, and he will become aware of illnesses which have need of ice poultices, and of men who are so kneaded together of heat and spirit that they can hardly find an atmosphere that is cold and biting enough. Moreover, as individuals and nations that are too serious have need of frivolities, as others too mobile and excitable have need occasionally of heavily oppressing burdens for the sake of their health, should not we, the more intellectual people of this age, that grows visibly more and more inflamed, sees all quenching and cooling means that exist in order that we may at least remain as constant harmless and moderate as we still are and thus perhaps serve some time or other as mirror and self-contemplation for this age 39 the fable of intelligible freedom the history of the sentiments by means of which we make a person responsible consists of the following principal phases first all single actions are called good or bad without any regard to their motives, but only on account of the useful or injurious consequences which result for the community. But soon the origin of these distinctions is forgotten, and it is deemed that the qualities good or bad are contained in the action itself without regard to its consequences, by the same error according to which language describes the stone as hard, the tree is green, with which, in short, the result is regarded as the cause." Then the goodness or badness is implanted in the motive, and the action in itself is looked upon as morally ambiguous. Mankind even goes further, and applies the predicate good or bad no longer to single motives, but to the whole nature of an individual, out of whom the motive grows as the plant grows out of the earth. Thus, in turn, man is made responsible for his operations, then for his actions, then for his motives, and finally for his nature. Eventually, it is discovered that even this nature cannot be responsible, inasmuch as it is an absolutely necessary consequence concreted out of the elements and influences of past and present things, that man, therefore, cannot be made responsible for anything, neither for his nature, nor his motives, nor his actions, nor his effects. It is therewith come to be recognized that the history of moral valuations is at the same time the history of an error, The error of responsibility, which is based upon the error of the freedom of will. Schopenhauer thus decided against it, because certain actions bring ill humor, consciousness of guilt, in their train. There must be responsibility, for there would be no reason for this ill humor if not only all human actions were not done of necessity, which is actually the case and also the belief of this philosopher. But man himself, from the same necessity, is precisely the being that he is, which Schopenhauer denies. From the fact of that ill-humor, Schopenhauer thinks he can prove a liberty which man must somehow have had, not with regard to actions, but with regard to nature. Liberty, therefore, to be thus or otherwise, not to act thus or otherwise. From the essay, the sphere of freedom and responsibility, there results, in his opinion, the operari the sphere of strict causality, necessity, and irresponsibility. This ill-humor is apparently directed to the operari, insofar as it is erroneous, but in reality it is directed to the essay, which is the deed of a free will, the fundamental cause of the existence of an individual. Man becomes that which he wishes to be. His will is anterior to his existence. Here the mistaken conclusion is drawn that from the fact of the ill-humor, the justification, the reasonable admissibleness of this ill-humor is presupposed, and starting from this mistaken conclusion, Schopenhauer arrives at his fantastic sequence of the so-called intelligible freedom. But the ill-humor after the deed is not necessarily reasonable. Indeed, it is assuredly not reasonable, for it is based upon the erroneous presumption that the action need not have inevitably followed. Therefore, it is only because man believes himself to be free, not because he is free, that he experiences remorse and pricks of conscience. Moreover, this ill-humor is a habit that can be broken off. In many people, it is entirely absent in connection with actions where others experience it. It is a very changeable thing, and one which is connected with the development of customs and culture, and probably only existing during a comparatively short period of the world's history no one is responsible for his actions nobody for his nature to judge is identical with being unjust this also applies when an individual judges himself the theory is as clear as sunlight and yet everyone prefers to go back into the shadow and the untruth for fear of the consequences 40. the super animal the beast in us wishes to be deceived Morality is a lie of necessity in order that we may not be torn in pieces by it. Without the errors which line the assumption of morality, man would have remained an animal. Thus, however, he has considered himself as something higher and has laid strict laws upon himself. Therefore, he hates the grades which have rendered near to animalness, whereby the former scorn of the slave, as not yet man, is to be explained as a fact. 41. The Unchangeable Character That the character is unchangeable is not true in a strict sense. This favorite theory means, rather, that during the short lifetime of an individual, the new influencing motives cannot penetrate deeply enough to destroy the ingrained marks of many thousands of years. But if one were to imagine a man of 80,000 years, one would have in him an absolutely changeable character, so that a number of different individuals would gradually develop out of him. The shortness of human life misleads us into forming many erroneous ideas about the qualities of man. 42. The Order of Possessions and Morality The once accepted hierarchy of possessions, according as this or the other is coveted by lower, higher, or highest egoism, now decides what is moral or immoral. To prefer a lesser good, for instance, the gratification of the senses, to a more highly valued good, for instance, health, is accounted immoral and also to prefer luxury to liberty. The hierarchy of possessions, however, is not fixed and equal at all times. If anyone prefers vengeance to justice, he is moral according to the standard of an earlier civilization, but immoral according to the present one. To be immoral, therefore, denotes that an individual has not felt, or not felt sufficiently strongly, the higher, finer spiritual motives which have come in with a new culture. It marks one who has remained behind, but only according to the difference of degrees. The order of possessions itself is not raised and lowered according to a moral point of view, but each time that it is fixed, it supplies the decision as to whether an action is moral or immoral. 43. Cruel people as those who have remained behind. People who are cruel nowadays must be accounted for by us as the grades of earlier civilizations which have survived. Here are exposed those deeper formations in the mountains of humanity which usually remain concealed. They are backward people whose brains, through all manner of accidents in the course of inheritance, have not been developed in so delicate and manifold a way. They show us what we all were and horrify us but they themselves are as little responsible as is a block of granite for being granite. There must, too, be grooves and twists in our brains which answer to that condition of mind, as in the form of certain human organs there are supposed to be traces of a fish state. But these grooves and twists are no longer the bed through which the stream of our sensation flows. 44. Gratitude and Revenge The reason why the powerful man is grateful is this. His benefactor, through the benefit he confers, has mistaken and intruded into the sphere of the powerful man. Now the latter, in return, penetrates into the sphere of the benefactor by the act of gratitude. It is a milder form of revenge. Without the satisfaction of gratitude, the powerful man would have shown himself powerless, and would have been reckoned as such even after. Therefore, every society of the good. Which originally meant the powerful places gratitude amongst the first duties. Swift propounded the maxim that men were grateful in the same proportion as they were revengeful. 45 The Twofold Early History of Good and Evil The conception of good and evil has a twofold early history namely, once in the soul of the ruling tribes and castes, whoever has the power of returning good for evil evil for evil, and really practices requital, and who is, therefore, grateful and revengeful, is called good. Whoever is powerless and unable to requite is reckoned as bad. As a good man, one is reckoned among the good, a community which has common feelings because the single individuals are bound to one another by the sense of requital. As a bad man, one belongs to the bad, to a party of subordinate, powerless people who have no common feeling. The good are a caste, the bad are a mass, like dust. Good and bad have for a long time meant the same thing as noble and base, master and slave. On the other hand, the enemy is not looked upon as evil, he can requite. In Homer the Trojan and the Greek are both good. It is not the one who injures us, but the one who is despicable, who is called bad. Good is inherited in the community of the good. It is impossible that a bad man could spring from such good soil. If, nevertheless, one of the good ones does something which is unworthy of the good, refuge is sought in excuses. The guilt is thrown upon a god, for instance, it is said that he has struck the good man with blindness and madness. Then, in the soul of the oppressed and powerless, here every other man is looked upon as hostile, inconsiderate, rapacious, cruel, cunning, be he noble or base. Evil is the distinguishing word for man, even for every conceivable living creature, e.g. for a god. Human, divine, is the same thing as devilish, evil. The signs of goodness, helpfulness, pity, are looked upon with fear as spite, the prelude to a terrible result, stupefaction and outwitting, in short, as refined malice. With such a disposition in the individual, a community could hardly exist, or at most it could exist only in its crudest form, so that in all places where the conception of good and evil obtains, the downfall of the single individuals, of their tribes and races, is at hand. Our present civilization has grown up on the soil of the ruling tribes and castes. 46. Sympathy Stronger Than Suffering There are cases when sympathy is stronger than actual suffering. For instance, we are more pained when one of our friends is guilty of something shameful than when we do it ourselves. For one thing, we have more faith in the purity of his character than he has himself. Then our love for him, probably on account of this very faith, is stronger than his love for himself. And even if his egoism suffers more thereby than our egoism... Inasmuch as it is to bear more of the bad consequences of his fault, the unegotistic in us, this word is not to be taken too seriously, but only as a modification of the expression, is more deeply wounded by his guilt than is the unegotistic in him. 47. Hypochondria. There are people who became hypochondrical through their sympathy and concern for another person. The kind of sympathy which results therefrom is nothing but a disease. Thus, there is also a Christian hypochondria, which afflicts those solitary, religiously minded people who keep constantly before their eyes the suffering and death of Christ. 48 Economy of Goodness Goodness and love, as the most healing herbs and powers in human intercourse, are such costly discoveries that one would wish as much economy as possible to be exercised in the employment of these balsamic means. But this is impossible. The economy of goodness is the dream of the most daring utopians. 49. Goodwill Amongst the small but countlessly frequent and therefore very effective things to which science should pay more attention than to the great, rare things, is to be reckoned goodwill. I mean that exhibition of a friendly disposition in intercourse, that smiling eye, that clasp of the hand, that cheerfulness with which most all human actions are usually accompanied. Every teacher, every official, adds this to whatever is his duty. It is the perpetual occupation of humanity, and at the same time the waves of its light, in which everything grows. In the narrowest circle, namely, within the family, Life blooms and flourishes only through that goodwill. Kindliness, friendliness, the courtesy of the heart, are ever-flowing streams of unegotistical impulses and have given far more powerful assistance to culture than even those much more famous demonstrations which are called pity, mercy, and self-sacrifice. But they are thought little of, and, as a matter of fact, there's not much that is unegotistic in them. The sum of these small doses is nevertheless mighty. Their united force is amongst the strongest forces. Thus one finds much more happiness in the world than sad eyes see, if one only reckons rightly, and does not forget all those moments of comfort in which every day is rich, even in the most harried of human lives. 50. The Wish to Arouse Pity In the most remarkable passage of his auto, Portrait, first printed in 1658, La Rochefoucauld assuredly hits the nail on the head when he warns all sensible people against pity. When he advises them to leave that to those orders of the people who have need of passion, because it is not ruled by reason, and to reach the point of helping the suffering and acting energetically in an accident, while pity, according to his and Plato's judgment, weakens the soul. Certainly, we should exhibit pity but take good care not to feel it, for the unfortunate are so stupid that to them the exhibition of pity is the greatest good in the world. One can, perhaps, give a more forcible warning against this feeling of pity if one looks upon that need of the unfortunate not exactly as stupidity and lack of intellect, a kind of mental derangement which misfortune brings with it, and as such, indeed, La Rochefoucauld appears to regard it, but as something quite different and more serious. Observe children who cry and scream in order to be pitied, and therefore wait for the moment when they will be noticed. Live in intercourse with the sick and mentally oppressed, and ask yourself whether that ready complaining and whimpering, that making a show of misfortune, does not, at bottom, aim at making the spectators miserable. The pity which the spectators then exhibit is in so far, a consolation for the weak and suffering in that the latter recognize therein that they possess still one power, in spite of their weakness, the power of giving pain. The unfortunate derives a sort of pleasure from this feeling of superiority, of which the exhibition of pity makes him conscious. His imagination is exalted. He is still powerful enough to give the world pain. Thus, the thirst for pity is the thirst for self-gratification, and that, moreover, at the expense of his fellow men. It shows man in the whole inconsiderateness of his own dear self, but not exactly in his stupidity, as La Rochefoucauld thinks. In society talk, three-fourths of all questions asked and of all answers given are intended to cause the interlocutor a little pain. For this reason, so many people pine for company. It enables them to feel their power. There is a powerful charm of life in such countless but very small doses in which malice makes itself felt, just as goodwill, spread in the same way throughout the world, is the ever-ready means of healing. But are there many honest people who will admit that it is pleasing to give pain, that one not infrequently amuses oneself, and amuses oneself very well, in causing mortifications to others, at least in thought, and firing off at them the grape shot of petty malice, most people are too dishonest, and a few are too good to know anything of this pudendum. These will always deny that Prosper Merimee is right when he says, "Sache aussi qu'il n'y a rien de plus que de faire le mal pour la plaisir de le faire." Fifty-one. How appearance becomes actuality. The actor finally reaches such a point that even in the deepest sorrow he cannot cease from thinking about the impression made by his own person and the general scenic effect. For instance, even at the funeral of his child, he will weep over his own sorrow and its expression like one of his own audience. The hypocrite, who always plays one in the same part, ceases at last to be a hypocrite. For instance, priests, who as young men are generally conscious or unconscious hypocrites become at last natural, and are then really without any affectation, just priests. Or if the father does not succeed so far, perhaps the son does, who makes use of his father's progress and inherits his habits. If any one long and obstinately desires to appear something, he finds it difficult at last to be anything else. The profession of almost every individual, even the artist, begins with hypocrisy, with an imitating from without, with a copying of the effective. He who always wears the mask of a friendly expression must eventually obtain a power over well-meaning dispositions without which the expression of friendliness is not to be compelled. And finally, these, again, obtain a power over him. He is well-meaning. 52. The Point of Honor in Deception in all great deceivers one thing is noteworthy, to which they owe their power. In the actual act of deception, with all their preparations, the dreadful voice, expression, and mind in the midst of their effective scenery, they are overcome by their belief in themselves, it is this, then, which speaks so wonderfully and persuasively to the spectators. The founders of religions are distinguished from those great deceivers in that they never awake from their condition of self-deception. Or at times, but very rarely, they have an enlightened moment when doubt overpowers them. They generally console themselves, however, by ascribing these enlightened moments to the influence of the evil one. There must be self-deception in order that this and that may produce great effects. For men believe in the truth of everything that is visibly, strongly believed in. 53. The Nominal Degrees of Truth One of the commonest mistakes is this. Because someone is truthful and honest towards us, he must speak the truth. Thus, the child believes in its parents' judgment, the Christian in the assertions of the founder of the church. In the same way, men refuse to admit that all those things which men defend in former ages with the sacrifice of life and happiness were nothing but errors. It is even said, perhaps, that they were degrees of the truth. But what is really meant is that when a man has honestly believed in something, and has fought and died for his faith, it would really be too unjust if he had only been inspired by an error. Such a thing seems a contradiction of eternal justice. Therefore, the heart of sensitive man ever enunciates against his head the axiom, between moral action and intellectual insight there must absolutely be a necessary connection. It is unfortunately otherwise for there is no eternal justice. 54. Falsehood Why do people mostly speak the truth in daily life? Assuredly not because a god has forbidden falsehood. But, firstly, because it is more convenient, as falsehood requires invention, deceit, and memory. As Swift says, he who tells a lie is not sensible how great a task he undertakes, For in order to uphold one lie, he must invent twenty others. Therefore, because it is advantageous in upright circumstances to say straight out, I want this, I have done that, and so on, because, in other words, the path of compulsion and authority is surer than that of cunning. But if a child has been brought up in complicated domestic circumstances, he employs falsehood naturally and unconsciously says whatever best suits his interest. A sense of truth and a hatred of falsehood are quite foreign and unknown to him, and so he lies in all innocence. 55. Throwing Suspicion on Morality for Faith's Sake No power can be maintained when it is only represented by hypocrites. No matter how many worldly elements the Catholic Church possesses, its strength lies in those still numerous priestly natures who render life hard and full of meaning for themselves, and whose glance and worn bodies speak of nocturnal vigils, hunger, burning prayers, and perhaps even of scourging. These move men and inspire them with fear. What if it were necessary to live thus? This is the terrible question which their aspect brings to the lips. Whilst they spread this doubt, they always uprear another pillar of their power. Even the freethinker does not dare to withstand such unselfishness with hard words of truth and to say, Thyself deceived, deceive no others. Only the difference of views divides them from him, certainly no difference of goodness or badness. But men generally treat unjustly that which they do not like. Thus we speak of the cunning and the infamous art of the Jesuits, but overlook the self-control which every individual Jesuit practices, and the fact that the lightened manner of life preached by Jesuit books is by no means for their benefit, but for that of the laity. We may even ask whether, with precisely similar tactics and organization, we enlightened ones would make equally good tools, equally admirable through self-conquest, defatigableness, and renunciation 56 victory of knowledge over radical evil it is of great advantage to him who desires to be wise to have witnessed for a time the spectacle of a thoroughly evil and degenerate man it is false like the contrary spectacle but for whole long periods it held the mastery and its roots have even extended and ramified themselves to us and our world. In order to understand ourselves, we must understand it, but then, in order to mount higher, we must rise above it. We must recognize, then, that there exist no sins in the metaphysical sense, but, in the same sense, also no virtues. We recognize that the entire domain of ethical ideas is perpetually tottering, that there are higher and deeper conceptions of good and evil, of moral and immoral. He who does not desire much more from things than a knowledge of them easily makes peace with his soul, and will make a mistake, or commit a sin as the world calls it, at the most from ignorance, but hardly from covetousness. He will no longer wish to excommunicate and exterminate desires, but is only his wholly dominating ambition to know as well as possible at all times, will make him cool and will soften all the savageness in his disposition. Moreover, he has been freed from a number of tormenting conceptions. He has no more feeling at the mention of the words punishments of hell, sinfulness, incapacity for good. He recognizes in them only the vanishing shadow pictures of false views of the world and of life. 57. Morality as the Self-Disintegration of Man A good author, who really has his heart in his work, wishes that someone could come and annihilate him by representing the same thing in a clear way and answering without more ado the problems therein proposed. The loving girl wishes she could prove the self-sacrificing faithfulness of her love by the unfaithfulness of her beloved, The soldier hopes to die on the field of battle for his victorious fatherland, for his loftiest desires triumph in the victory of his country. The mother gives to the child that of which she deprives herself, sleep, the best food, sometimes her health and fortune. But are all these unegotistic conditions? Are these deeds of morality miracles because, to use Schopenhauer's expression, they are impossible and yet performed? Is it not clear that in all four cases the individual loves something of himself, a thought, a desire, a production, better than anything else of himself, that he therefore divides his nature and to one part sacrifices all the rest? Is it something entirely different when an obstinate man says, I would rather be shot than move a step out of my way for this man? The desire for something, wish, inclination, longing, is present in all the instances mentioned. To give way to it, with all its consequences, is certainly not unegotistic. In ethics man does not consider himself an individuum, but as a dividuum. 58. What one may promise. One may promise actions, but no sentiments, for these are involuntary. Whoever promises to love or hate a person, or be faithful to him forever, promises something which is not within his power. He can certainly promise such actions as are usually the results of love, hate, or fidelity, but which may also spring from other motives, for many ways and motives lead to one and the same action. The promise to love someone forever is, therefore, really, so long as I love you, I will act towards you in a loving way. If I cease to love you... You will still receive the same treatment for me, although inspired by other motives, so that our fellow man will still be deluded into the belief that our love is unchanged and ever the same. One promises, therefore, the continuation of the semblance of love, when, without self-deception, one speaks vows of eternal love. 59. Intellect and Morality One must have a good memory to be able to keep a given promise. One must have a strong power of imagination to be able to feel pity. So closely is morality bound to the goodness of the intellect. 60. To wish for revenge and to take revenge. To have a revengeful thought and carry it into effect is to have a violent attack of fever, which passes off, however. But to have a revengeful thought without the strength and courage to carry it out is a chronic disease, a poisoning of body and soul, which we have to bear about with us. Morality, which only takes intentions into account, considers the two cases as equal. Usually the former case is regarded as the worse, because of the evil consequences which may perhaps result from the deed of revenge. Both estimates are short-sighted. 61. The Power of Waiting Waiting is so difficult that even great poets have not disdained to take incapability of waiting as the motive for their works. Thus, Shakespeare and Othello, or Sophocles and Ajax, to whom suicide had he been able to let his feelings cool down for one day, would no longer have seemed necessary, as the oracle intimated, He would probably have snapped his fingers at the terrible whisperings of wounded vanity and said to himself, Who is not already, in my circumstances, mistaken a fool for a hero? Is it something so very extraordinary? On the contrary, it is something very commonly human. Ajax might allow himself that consolation. Passion will not wait. The tragedy in the lives of great men frequently lies not in their conflict with the times and the baseness of their fellow men, but in their incapacity of postponing their work for a year or two, they cannot wait. In all duels, advising friends have one thing to decide, namely whether the parties concern can still wait a while. If this is not the case, then a duel is advisable, inasmuch as each of the two says, Either I continue to live and that other man must die immediately, or vice versa. In such case, waiting could mean a prolonged suffering of the terrible martyrdom of wounded honor in the face of the insulter, and this may entail more suffering than life is worth. 62. Reveling in Vengeance Coarser individuals, who feel themselves insulted, make out the insult to be as great as possible and relate the affair in greatly exaggerated language, in order to be able to revel thoroughly in the rarely awakened feelings of hatred and revenge. 63. The Value of Disparagement In order to maintain their self-respect in their own eyes and a certain thoroughness of action, not a few men, perhaps even the majority, find it absolutely necessary to run down and disparage all their acquaintances, But as mean natures are numerous, and since it is very important whether they possess that thoroughness or lose it, hence, 64, the man in a passion, we must beware of one who is in a passion against us as of one who has once sought our life. For the fact that we still live is due to the absence of power to kill. If looks would suffice, we should have been dead long ago. It is a piece of rough civilization to force someone into silence by the exhibition of physical savageness and the inspiring of fear. That cold glance which exalted persons employ towards their servants is also a relic of that caste division between man and man, a piece of rough antiquity. Women, the preservers of ancient things, have also faithfully retained this survival of an ancient habit. 65. Whither HONESTY CAN LEAD Somebody had the bad habit of occasionally talking quite frankly about the motives of his actions, which were as good and as bad as the motives of most men. He first gave offense, then aroused suspicion, was then gradually excluded from society and declared a social outlaw, until at last justice remembered such an abandoned creature, on occasions when it would otherwise have had no eyes or would have closed them. The lack of power to hold his tongue concerning the common secret, and the irresponsible tendency to see what no one wishes to see himself, brought him to a prison and an early death. 66. Punishable, but never punished. Our crime against criminals lies in the fact that we treat them like rascals. 67. Sancta simplicitas of virtue. Every virtue has its privileges. For example, that of contributing its own little faggot to the scaffold of every condemned man. 68. Morality and Consequences It is not only the spectators of a deed who frequently judge of its morality or immorality according to its consequences, but the doer of the deed himself does so for the motives and intentions are seldom sufficiently clear and simple, and sometimes memory itself seems clouded by the consequences of the deed, so that one ascribes the deed to false motives or looks upon unessential motives as essential. Success often gives an action the whole honest glamour of a good conscience. Failure casts a shadow of remorse over the most estimable deed. Hence arises the well-known practice of the politician, who thinks, "'Only grant me success!' With that, I bring all honest souls over to my side and make myself honest in my own eyes. In the same way, success must replace a better argument. Many educated people still believe that the triumph of Christianity over the Greek philosophy is proof of the greater truthfulness of the former, although in this case it is only the coarser and more powerful that has triumphed over the more spiritual and delicate. Which possesses the greater truth may be seen from the fact that the awakening sciences have agreed with Epicurus' philosophy on point after point, but on point after point have rejected Christianity. End of Second Division, The History of the Moral Sentiments, Part 1.